This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Good evening and welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show, a little sex show disguised as a health show. Hi, I'm Maureen McGrath, registered nurse and sex expert. That's the cue to put the kids to bed. The benefits of sex range from slashing your stress levels to decreasing risk of chronic disease. The benefits of good health means your relationship and your sex life might even improve. Sex facilitates bonding and feelings of intimacy, which does more than make you feel warm and fuzzy. It boosts your overall health. This This show, remember, does not serve as medical advice. Tonight in the program, we're talking about those perfect partners, wives who make more than their husbands and how they talk about it. Your amazing brain, comfort on the receiving end, brain and pain, men and feelings, and who Ellen DeGeneres wants to help and why. If you have a question for me, the number to call is... 1-877-399-9898. That's 1-877-399-9898. You can also email me in confidence at nursetalk at hotmail.com. We have so much, as I said, to cover on the program tonight. Uh, But right now, we are talking... And now, Maureen's Health Headline. That's right. And my health headline is about your midlife crisis and what you can do about your midlife crisis. Joining me very shortly on the program is Karen Crisco. She's a life balance coach. She is also a, an intuitive medium and a reflexologist at Channeled Wisdom. So I just want to give a quick review because last week we talked about midlife crisis, what it is, the signs and symptoms, and tonight we're going to talk about how to deal with it. So do you know anybody who's purchased an expensive sports car lately? Maybe they're in their mid-40s, they're getting some fancy bling, they're all of a sudden getting fillers and Botox, and what do these three behaviors have in common? They may signify a midlife crisis. Do you notice some uh, older guy with some young babe on the arm or vice versa? Well, that can mean a midlife crisis as well. And midlife crisis can dig a significant hole in your financial life, uh, your retirement accounts. And, um, you know, while, while only about 10% of the population has a legitimate, identifiable midlife crisis, the process can be very painful for many people, which is why I have invited Karen on, Karen Crisco to talk to us about what to do about that midlife crisis. Good evening, Karen. Good evening, Maureen. How are you? Fine, thank you. Thanks for joining me. Good. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. So tremendous work you do in terms of your uh, coaching, your life coaching. So you see this in your practice, this midlife crisis, and it takes many different forms. How do you help people to live that balanced life, especially through midlife Well, I find that, again, you know, midlife crisis for men and women can obviously be very different and and age-related as well, too. But um, I find the biggest thing is I really take a look at the overall picture of their life and their health, uh, their lifestyle, how they're living, their diet, um, and, again, also taking uh, a look at different areas where, you know, we can reduce tension and stress that we can take a different, you know, different look and a deeper look at, you know, 
what's going on in their lives. You know, how's their sleep? How is their relationships? Because when we kind of look at all of this stuff that kind of, I'm going to call them attachments that people have throughout life, this is what can really, you know, bring them down having into the midlife crisis and really elevate and bring up, well, how do we prevent this, right? Are you, do you have a healthy diet? Do you take care of yourself? Can you identify different sources of stress? What's your support group like? So there's so many different areas that I really have to dig deep, go in with them and see where they may be lacking to kind of help them prevent this, to kind of build up their self-esteem, their self-worth, their exercise, their diet, um, to get them to really look into and, and, help them kind of move out of, so to speak, uh, a midlife crisis. No, not always are you going to get them out of it, but maybe you can help them soften, you know, let's say the blow to moving into those stages of your life. How much does self-esteem, and you touched upon it a little bit, but how much is how somebody feels about themselves on the inside or how they feel their life has gone to date contribute to a midlife crisis? Oh, it is huge. And I find, you know, the biggest root cause when I deal with so many different people, male and female, and it doesn't matter their age. And we usually say, you know, midlife crisis can hit anywhere from 40s to mid 50s for males and usually in the mid 40s for females. So when we look at this with self-esteem and their self-worth, right, they can look at themselves and go, well, why am I, why am I feeling this way, right? Hormones change their appearance change. They can look at the younger, you know, I heard you talking earlier just about, you know, that man walking with that young woman on his arm. A lot of that stuff takes digs at your self-esteem and your self-worth as well as in career as well too. How are you feeling that you're standing up and how is your success in your life coming about that, you know, you can actually keep that self-worth, that self-esteem going going up to not get you into that state of uh, crisis because it really is when we're down on ourselves, when we um, are harsh on ourselves and beat ourselves up, it really takes a hit at the ego and, and it's a ripple effect in all areas of your life. And that's where things seem to diminish and, and count down where they start losing that self-worth, that self-esteem, lack of sleep, lack of exercise, and then their mental instability as well really takes a toll on it. And how can somebody, I had a patient recently tell me that he had been dealing with feelings of self-worth as a result of his childhood. Uh, how sure. can somebody build up their, their worthiness? And, and the other question I have for you that I don't want to forget is in our society, we, and you talked about success, we actually define success pretty much is how much money you make, what kind of cars oh, yeah. you drive. And so how do we redefine success? To, to me, success is peace of mind and what you do for others. And aside from that, there's nothing else that I measure success by. But how can we change That's that? So and how much does that contribute that when we measure how well we're doing at work, how well we're doing against our peers, what, what kind of house we have, our big, the, you know, what size car, whatever. Uh, how does that, that, that sort of falsely fills up our cup? Oh, it's sure. And you know, this is a society that I have actually been working a lot on too of social medias. And, and you look at social media, you look at your coworkers, you look and see what everybody else is doing. 
And you're living almost, I call it like a false external life. You're not really living. You're, you're living in this vessel and you're not living to your authentic self, your organic self. And it really takes a toll on yourself because you're really living somebody that you're not, right? You're trying to be somebody else. And it really builds, or it really, sorry, it takes away that self-esteem, that self-confidence. And we really need to go back within ourselves when we talk about worthiness and issues coming from childhood. You really need to go back and identify what was it that brought you down feeling that lack of in childhood where you can actually come face to face with it and whether you see a therapist or go get help somewhere of finding, you know, where that lack was so you can reestablish and rebuild that relationship with yourself. And you really need to take that social media and everybody else's bigger houses and bigger cars and kind of push it to the sidelines and go, you know, you don't know how they're living in their life. They could be living a face too, right? They, they could have their own problems. So you really need to go back within yourself and rebuild that confidence, rebuild that uh, relationship with yourself and finding that self-worth, that self-love. Because when you do establish that love for yourself, and again, we're not going in and saying, you know, oh, to love yourself is a, a vain, egotistic thing because it's truly not. In order to have relationships and success in the external world, you really have to find that success within yourself because we can look at you know midlife crisis and I mean I like to look at it as being an opportunity for significant positive change so if they are feeling that everything is kind of closing in on them with everybody else around them build back that you know self-esteem and self-worth inside find that love you know go out and find things that make you happy go out and eat a healthy diet and get exercise and have you know, good relationships and friendships and define your own success of finding that self-worth, that commitment, that self-love within yourself so you can truly see it shine externally and have positive relationships on the outside. Absolutely. And a lot of people um, feel that they're the only ones with problems because I'm going to be talking about this later on in the program, especially men. Mm. Men don't like, Mm. you know, women are talkers, um, but men don't typically like to share their feelings about life or their childhood or their past or their situations at work or whatever. And they may keep a lot in. So how is it that somebody can deal with a, a childhood where there was neglect or abuse or a, or a, personality disorder, for example. I mean, parenting is difficult enough. It doesn't come with a booklet or instructions on how to parent. But what if you get, you know, you're one of those kids who had one of those secret shameful lives. How is it that they can love themselves? Are there any particular strategies? Well, what I like to use a lot in what I do is when we go back to childhood, we like to identify, obviously, who was it that was the trigger that started this? And then we go back in into your feelings and owning up to your feelings that, you know what, it's okay to be angry and it's okay to be sad and it's okay to have these feelings against maybe these people, whether it be, again, we can't say if it's parents or grandparents or whoever raised you, it's okay to have those feelings against them. But I like to take them out of the, the picture and look at the bigger picture, the different perspective of What was that individual going through? You know, we don't know what they were living. We don't know how they were brought up. So I like to take those tools to get them to look at, you know, sometimes these things happen and it's really not because of you. 
It's not your fault. And when people can release some of this guilt and understand, oh, my goodness, this wasn't my fault. This, you know, I was just a victim of it, but I chose to let it kind of lead throughout my life. So I say to people, too, don't let this energy weigh on you. Take it and set it aside from you, almost like you're watching a TV screen, that if you need to go through these different um, life traumas that you've experienced, watch them almost like on a TV screen and don't let that energy weigh down on you because energy, as well as feelings and emotions, we know how heavy they can weigh on us. So if we can remove that lightness away from us and see the bigger picture that something really wasn't your fault. It's usually due to somebody else's feelings and trying to connect and overcome with that and get the experience that you've learned from it. And even though it was a tough experience they may have gone through, be thankful that this has come up because you're a stronger person today because of this situation. I like it. It's really about mindset. It's really about perspective. It's about owning it. It's about having those feelings and dealing with those emotions and knowing that it's absolutely okay to be angry. It's okay to be sad. And then moving on from there. That's excellent advice, Karen Crisco. I really appreciate you coming on the program from Waterloo, Ontario, Canada. Uh, You are a certified life balance coach, intuitive medium reflexologist at Channeled Wisdom. How can people get in touch with you? They can contact me throughout the website at www.channeled-wisdom.com or Karen Crisco. It comes up on the on Google search, no problem. So Wonderful. Thank you so much. We'll have to get you back uh, to talk a bit more about all of this. That's wonderful. Thank you. I am delighted to have my next guest in the studio because I'm extremely interested in the brain and all of the miraculous ways that the brain changes. Um, Ward Plunet is a neuroscientist, PhD neuroscientist from the University of British Columbia. He joins me in studio. We're talking about the neurons that form in the brain well into the later decades of life. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Thanks for having me on. Well, I'm glad to have you back. So I saw this on LinkedIn. You had posted this. Uh, you're a neuroscientist. I said, come on in. Uh, because people oftentimes believe that, uh, you know, our, we're set at 50 or 60 or 70 and that your brain can't change. We know a little bit about neuroplasticity. But tell me a little bit about neurogenesis, especially as people age or living much longer. So neurogenesis means the birth of new neurons. And You know, from the 50s, we actually didn't think adult um, brains, including in rodents, uh, grew new neurons. And then the 60s, we found out, yes, the rodents did, but then we thought, ah, no, not the humans. And it wasn't until actually 1998 that we found that there is neurogenesis in humans. But then you still think, oh, it's the the young people. Um, But the, you know, the research over the last 20 years has shown that it's um, in all age groups, it's less as you age. Um, and that plays a role in dementia and Alzheimer's and all that. But yes, this latest study actually looked at 79-year-olds to 99-year-olds, and they actually found new neurons in all of them. They only looked at 18 subjects. It's hard to get the brain tissue of humans. But there was new neurons and um, new immature neurons becoming more adult and nourished neurons in all the people, including 99-year-olds. So this is significant, especially for dementia and Alzheimer's disease and maybe even Parkinson's disease and some of the other neurological disorders that affect people as they age. Uh, Yes. Now, this is in one very small area of the brain, in the hippocampus, which is important for memory, and just one area of the hippocampus called the dentate gyrus. And so it's very specific, but it is important for dementia. 
um, and general you know, cognitive impairment, but also depression. Um, there's a correlation between increased neurogenesis and reduced depression, and you have um, more likely to have depression if you have reduced neurogenesis in general. Oh, interesting. And a lot of people with those diseases, dementia, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's disease, may actually experience depression as well. And of course, people can experience depression at any decade of their life. Um, But do you think there's a potential that this will lead to better treatments for depression and prevention potentially of cognitive decline, dementia, Alzheimer's disease? Uh, Yes, in general, like even most of our antidepressants um, increase neurogenesis in general. Exercise, we talked about lifestyle earlier on in one year guest. Exercise increased neurogenesis. Um, But still that said, as we age, it's reduced. So even a 20-year-old running an hour every day or 20 minutes or whatever is going to produce more new neurons than an 80-year-old. But yes, it still can help. Right. And if somebody already has some cognitive decline or dementia or has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, did, did they find in this study that those people actually did not, um, the neurogenesis was lessened? Yes. When they compared, again, they only had 18 subjects, uh, 10 of them, no, nine of them had Alzheimer's disease of some sort. And most of them had mild cognitive impairment. And basically the people that had the lowest cognitive scores had the lowest neurogenesis. So there was a nice correlation there. Right. And do you think there that uh, this relates to it, that it's so important uh, for people to live their best life? And let's define that, what I mean by best life. Some people can think of it as, you know, just living wild and crazy and taking every um moment and sitting on the couch and eating whatever they want, but their best life meaning exercise seems to continue to rear its head as the fountain of youth or one one critical aspect of the fountain of youth. Yes, you know, um, we can only do so many things, but yes, exercise, uh, we talked about healthy diet, um, you know, the all the things that you, your grandmother told you and all the things we hear in the news of what is good for your health, exercise, um, you know, having a reasonable uh, weight, um, and exercise definitely increased neurogenesis, also in rich environment. And that is more survival of the new neurons. You got to take that with a grain of salt because most of these studies are done in rodents and their lifestyle is somewhat prison-like compared to ours. Most human beings in our world do have a fairly enriched environment. We have a very rich social, but I would still say we have lots of studies that so increased socialness decreases depression in that. So it probably wouldn't be that surprising that there might be an increased neurogenesis also with, um, you know, enriched environment, social, having conversations like this. Right. So um, how is it that exercise actually changes the brain? Why is it so important and why is it so difficult for people to start or for people to continue? Okay, so the first question, um, we might not know that all of them, well, I guess so, some people know the molecular detail. I couldn't tell you right now, um, but it does, definitely does increase neurogenesis. They, the reason they think it does is that it's important for spatial navigation. And all organisms moving around kind of have to have some type of memory of the spatial nav- navigation. And so it plays a fundamental role for that. Now, for us, you know, we want to memorize Shakespeare or something, so um, not the same survival uh, reason for that. The other second question, if I could answer how to get people to exercise, um, we'd all be extremely rich (laughs) if we could solve that. That's a very difficult problem. Um, It's not, you know, should I exercise or what exercise should do? It's getting people to exercise is a huge problem. And it's that motivation. And, you know, and I've experienced it myself. You know, I, I swim in the mornings and typically I'm down at the water, you know, 10 to 7. But it's that means getting up at 6.20, getting up and out and sometimes putting on a wetsuit, you know, and it's just like, you know, there have been a number of days where I'm like, 
forget it. I'm not going today. Uh, but when I do go, it's such a great hit of pleasure. You know, it just starts the day off right. I feel energized. I feel fantastic. But we forget about that, um, that little aspect of, of... But you're doing something impressive, like putting on a wetsuit, you know, and getting out in the cold. That's, <laughs> you know, that is a hard hurdle. You know, most of us, you know, especially if we're talking about these 70-year-olds or 80-year-olds, if we can just get them to walk a lot, that would be great. Uh, so depending on w- where you are in life and your capability, but doing anything can help. So that's the big encouragement for people. Right. And just get moving. And what I see in my clinical practice is uh, patients who have difficulty with mobility and not because their hip, you know, has worn out or their knees. I certainly see that, but it's more from obesity. So sugar seems to play a huge role in obesity. It's stored as fat in the body. What is the effect that sugar has on on the brain? And, and can this unhealthy lifestyle, do you think, and I'm asking you to speculate here a bit, or, um, that one would be less likely to grow new neurons if they consumed excessive alcohol, ate a lot of sugar, didn't exercise? So I'm sure they've done the alcohol study, but I can't recall them. They have done a lot of high-fat diet and I know a lot of people are maybe ketogenic diet and that, but in the rodents, a high-fat diet is actually high-fat and high-sugar, or a lot of carbs. And that seems to be a deadly mix, and that definitely does decrease the neurogenesis. Um, sometimes it's hard to translate that into humans, but again, think of the logic, less processed food, eat whole foods, don't eat too much, and exercise. Um, right. Definitely will lead to these good things. And you're obviously right. If you are overweight, it's harder to have the incentive to move, because it is actually harder to move and you have a higher hurdle. Um, so yeah, that is a difficult problem. And, and I see a lot of people, and I, I've talked about this before, on, who have erectile dysfunction as a result of their being overweight, they're having a high sugar diet. And so to you, my listeners, I offer my all-in diet. So you can email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com. It's low glycemic index, high protein, low carb. Um, and you know, you'll lose, if you've got some excess poundage on you, depending on how much, you can lose 16 to 20 pounds in a month living this way. And it's actually not a diet. I call it the all-in nutrition plan, named after a lawyer in, o- in Ohio who... <laughs> who was a patient online of mine, um, because he didn't, he was disappointed after a few weeks, but he was still eating Chinese food and he was drinking. And and so I said, listen, if you want to go, he had erectile dysfunction issues. I said, if you want to go all in, you need to go all in. Hence, I named the uh, nutrition plan, the all in diet. So I'm happy to send it to you, nursetalk at hotmail.com. So serotonin plays a big, uh, big role as well in depression. And, and that's, in fact, how some of the uh, antidepressants work. But there's also a lot of activities that, that can be done. First of all, can you explain um, the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor? Um, a little bit. Um, but yes, if you block the uptake of serotonin, there's more serotonin in the synaptic cleft, so you have more active uh, activity of the serotonin, and that is correlated with uh, decreased depression. Um, and most of your antidepressants will increase the serotonin, um, but also they increase neurogenesis. So then it becomes like, okay, which one's more important? They probably play, um, maybe we don't know how much of a role, but they both are important. And then exercise, 
um, which, as far as I understand, does increase serotonin. It increased neurogenesis, and it also helps with depression. I'm not saying one is better than the other, and I would hope um, to use anything that can help people with depression. Um, but there's probably multifactorial things leading to depression and the relief of depression. I, I think so, for sure. And I, and I think if you're, um, you know, this is a conversation for you and your physician, if you're experiencing depression and what works for you may not work for somebody else. And, and oftentimes combination therapy can be very helpful between talk therapy, medications and exercise as well. I was always curious about um, repetitive behaviors or repetitive activities like knitting, chewing gum and swimming, cycling. Are these helpful? for serotonin it is that repetitive is it that repetitive behavior that's what i'd always heard that those can be um extremely helpful uh for i haven't heard that i'll have to look into that but i haven't particularly heard that but it's easy for me to miss lots of the information out there (laughs) playing guitar you know strumming the the, the repeated nature of those activities i will look into that boost serotonin levels for patients so uh ward plunet i'm going to ask you to stay in the studio because where you have so kindly offered your services to talk about uh, the brain and memory and how we might be able to erase memories, especially the hard ones. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. This is Maureen McGrath. I have, Do- I have Ward Plunet, PhD and neuroscientist in the studio with me. We're talking about the brain. We're going to be talking about erasing memories, but I do want to start out with a caller, JR from Edmonton, Alberta. Hello, JR. Hey, girl, how are you? Fine, thanks. How are you doing? I'm doing just honky-dory, and hello to your guests. Hello, Matt. You hello, can say hello. hello. <laughs> okay, good deal. All right. Um, Maureen, we've got to talk at some other show, but I've got a whole bunch of things for you here. I'm a 64-year-old male. I was born, of course, 1955. I was born with ADD, ADHD. Depression is a normal thing of my life. It's like when I was born, there was no treatment or knowledge of depression, ADD, ADHD. I went all through school. Uh, I left it in grade. After I turned 16, halfway through grade eight, I said, that's it. I got to go to work. Um, Life for me has gone up and down over the last, say, 30 years. I'm in my sixth relationship. This is my sixth. Well, not, we're not married, but we are living together and have been for the last 10 years. Uh, I finally found the one person who understands me and accepts me for who and what I am. We've got, I deal with ED. I deal with, of course, depression. It goes up and down. Uh, we found that we've changed our lifestyle. Uh, we're swingers. She gets what she needs and I'm happy and it goes back and forth. How does those neurons that you're talking about, how does it relate to my life and what's going on in my life? Can you give me some insight? Well, I would say those neurons are dancing, but I'm going to refer to the neuroscientist who knows a lot more about neurogenesis than I do. Um, well, I can kind of tell you what the neurons do um, in the sense of, they, in general, they will help you with your memory. Uh, they help you deal with stress. Uh, they actually help you also forget, um, forget and memory, um, and also reduce depression. But 
you know, the way you just describe things, um, I would say you would maybe want to see a medical doctor and also people that understand relationship, um, which I'm not a relationship expert, so I might hand that off to... Uh, but, but do you think the swinging, which is pleasurable for many people, does it release particular chemicals? Anything that's pleasurable, eating a donut um, can be very pleasurable and can release dopamine. Um, so is it, or is it finding that person, being able to connect with somebody, does that contribute to neurogenesis? Um, does that help your brain activity, your serotonin levels? and also any other activities. It might be cycling, it might be swimming. Um, so I haven't heard anything particular about dopamine affecting neurogenesis, but obviously we all like the happiness of, uh, be it from sex to any things of happiness that uh, reduce, uh, that increases that dopamine and that dopamine rush. Now, obviously there's some dangers such as addiction uh, in certain situations, uh, but yes, love and all that releases dopamine um, and that's all, all great for us. And that is separate necessarily from neurogenesis, but it's still a needed component of life, and we all want more of that. Absolutely. No, thank you very much, JR from Edmonton, for that comment. Now, we touched a little bit upon memory, and I wanted to talk a little bit about erasing memories. And, and we talked in the studio before that the brain may actually have the capacity to erase memories, and that could be important in PTSD. Uh, yes, and it's actually interesting at a couple levels is that only in the last decade did we realize there's an active mechanism in the brain to forget. And you think, well, that's, that's crazy, right? We want, we want to remember everything. Um, but when you're in new environments, sometimes you have to forget the past to actually use kind of the new rules that your brain has figured out. And so there's several active mechanisms of, of forgetting, including all of us uh, as we go through our life. But for post-traumatic stress disorder, there is um, some research, and they've done it, definitely done in rodents, and they're working towards the clinical, but we're not there yet. And the basic idea is every time you recall a memory, it becomes more plastic. And we have to spend energy and create new protein to cement that memory back in. And so there are ways you can do it in at least the rodents. If you recall that specific fear memory in our rodent studies, and then you block protein synthesis and they'll actually lose that fear memory. And there's several researchers, actually a lot of researchers working on that for the potential in the clinical for post-traumatic stress disorder, or maybe, uh, you know, maybe even relationships, bad relationships, as I think there's a couple movies about that, um, but we're not there yet clinically. But, but maybe in the future there's potential that there will be a chemical or you know, a medication that somebody could take that would block that protein that would block that, that would prevent um, that memory from resurfacing and, and being triggered um, in certain situations as well? Uh, yes, that's the, the general uh, big picture plan is basically you have to recall that bad memory, which in this case, let's say post-traumatic, let's say it's a war situation. And then through certain chemistries of reducing that cementing process of that re-putting uh, that memory back into your brain. And it would probably require, you know, several... Um, episodes of doing that, um, which is obviously not fun because you have to recall it. And we'll probably never get rid of it, but we can dampen it because there's also some hidden mechanisms in the brain that kind of keeps it, but it will kind of be out of your conscious brain. 
out of your conscious brain. And then that will allow people to live a healthier, better, more engaged life where they're less worried about um, issues that are less worried about running into somebody, for example, because that's that may be a bad, associated with a bad memory. As you mentioned, the relationship, the bad relationship or or a trauma, a car accident. A lot of people suffer post-traumatic stress disorder after a car accident or after a failed marriage, for example, or um, or a nasty divorce. Uh, people can suffer or being in an abusive relationship as well. And so all of these can bring changes to the brain, I imagine, but there is some hope in the future that people will not have to remember those or remember them as significantly. Uh, yeah, that, that would be the idea. And the problem with the more wider social ones, such as marriages, might be more difficult because the memory of your 10-year marriage, let's say, is filled with so many different connections. Where let's say a specific episode such as a car accident, that's a very concrete, specific time point, and that might be far easier to erase, and you might actually not want to erase the whole 10-year marriage because that might include the children and everything else. So I think that would be a difficult one, but a very concrete situation such as a war situation or car accident, that at least in theory, in the future clinically, we might be able to do. That's fantastic. Ward Plunet, PhD, University of British Columbia. Thank you so much for talking about this incredibly interesting subject. We'll have you back and talk more, especially as the science progresses. And uh, speaking of a memory that you might want to erase, I just read the book called The Perfect Nanny. I highly recommend it. You got questions? She's got answers. The nurse is in for Nurse Talk. Okay, well, I may not have all the answers, which is why I've invited Rocky Lee, the Clarity Coach, into the studio with me. He is he sees people all over North America, although he is located in Richmond, British Columbia. And the reason I invited him in is because I wanted to talk about this one key belief that is killing marriages. Welcome to the studio, Rocky. Thank you, Maureen. Great to have you here. So what is that one key belief that is killing marriages? Well, it's interesting because I just posted this on Instagram and Facebook the other day. And basically what I posted was, you don't need to love every single thing about a person in order to love the person as a whole. Stop sacrificing happiness and search for perfection. Because nobody's perfect, Because nobody's perfect. No, we're not perfect. Um, and this is one of the fundamental beliefs in a relationship is that someone has to be perfect in order for them to love me, in order for me to love them. Yeah. And that's an ideal that we'll never accomplish. No, it's, and it's funny because it, if, if you want to frame it into two questions, it, it kind of sounds like, uh, the first question would sound like, can I make you happy? And then the other question is usually framed, um, are you capable of making me happy? So it all centers around this concept of happiness, but, but built into that mechanism is this belief that it's got to come perfect. And it just never is. Right. We're humans and we make all sorts of mistakes and they're never for the intentions that we perceive it to be. And that's where we get tripped up is that we believe that if, you know, I make a mistake in doing something for my wife, that that intention is taken in a wrong way. And that's kind of where we get stuck. And you may have a good intention mm-hmm. to do something for your wife. That's right. And, and I see this a lot in my practice where, um, especially oftentimes when there's been a, 
a problem in the relationship. Yep. Women want to change the man. They want to force the man to to work through the feelings, to transform themselves before the man gets there. And so that can also be problematic. Do you see that in your clinical practice? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There's a, there's always problems in that. And and it's really difficult because the men will speak to me on the opposite side of like, what else do I need to do? What more do I need to do for my wife to be able to make her realize that I love her this much? And so when we throw in demands and expectations that are literally riddled with the aspect that it's got to become, it's got to be packaged in perfection, then it's really difficult for love to flow. So from a core standpoint, we all long to be loved. We, we all want to experience love. We all want to experience connection and we all want to experience significance. And experiencing those three gives us the sense of certainty in our relationship. The problem is that if we wrap it all up into perfection, it's got to be executed in perfection, then there's really no, no give to actually experience that. It, it's, it's really conditional than the love. And so the problem is that we are all wired to want to experience unconditional love, but we don't want to play by the rules of unconditional love because it's scary. Because unconditional love's rules are that I will love irregardless of whether I have any return. That's the rule for unconditional love. Mm-hmm. But that's so scary because we all want to make sure that we get some sort of return. So we actually flip towards conditional love and we start throwing in demands and, and no, that's not good enough. It's got to be this much more. The funny thing is that in the beginning stages of our relationship, we actually all function under unconditional love. We're completely just engrossed in being in love with our partner. And it's just over time through little petty things that begin to eat away at us, kind of like a sliver inside of us, that it starts to chew away at us. And that's where we begin to shift from unconditional love to conditional love. And you're right. We overlook those things. You know, other, oftentimes friends or family might say, you know, there's a bit of a red flag here with this guy or there's, you know, I wouldn't marry her or, you know, I would think about it um, before you dive in deep with this, with this person. And yeah. then only over time do we see that. We were talking a little bit about infidelity. Mm-hmm. You see a lot of people who have experienced infidelity mm-hmm. in their relationship. And how can they get clear on the reasons for the infidelity and, and what can they do to actually move past because there, and I see this in my practice, a lot of people are like, if only you do this, if you do that, I can get past it. If you do this, and then they can never do anything to get past it. So how do you help um, individuals that have experienced that? Yeah, I'm glad glad you brought that question up um, because that is one that's asked quite a lot for me. So how I answer it is this, there's nothing that you can do to change the past. There's absolutely nothing. All that you can do is take action in the present But you can only do that if you have a very clear vision of what you want your marriage to be moving forward. So I kind of frame it as in, if you buy a house and it's completely impractical, there's, you know, molding and uh, toxicity levels in in certain walls or, or, you know, the windows are all outdated and the heating ducts don't work and electrical is outdated. Just trying to fix that wouldn't solve the issue. You pretty much have to gut it. Mm-hmm. So what I really recommend for couples is to redevelop their vision for their marriage. What would it look like for the next 10 to 15 or 20 years? And is there a way now, if we chart that out, what that marriage looks like into the future? 
what actions do you need to take currently to be able to actually have that moving forward? And sometimes that action will need tremendous forgiveness. It will need tremendous vulnerability of opening up again. Sometimes that will need you to redefine what love means to you again. Sometimes it'll mean that you'll need to actually experience a whole different level of actually executing trust. So those are all the things that we can actually do in the present, but it starts with actually creating a vision for what your marriage will look like moving forward. And so again, it's like you can't do anything with the past, but you can do something right now. Mm -hmm. So if two people are really invested in keeping their marriage together, there's so much that they can do. So much that they can do to recreate, or not recreate, let me just take that back, to actually redesign their marriage to look like something different moving forward. Mm -hmm. Because clearly what they actually saw or what they designed in their marriage before wasn't serving them. It wasn't working. Right. And what if uh, the couple, one is moving along at a faster pace than Mm -hmm. the other and feels that they're doing the work and they feel the other one isn't doing the work. And we see this more commonly in heterosexual relationships. The female is, you know, diving right in, doing all of this therapy and and doesn't feel that the man is um, expressing humility or being vulnerable or sharing the feelings and just wants to forget it, basically. Yeah. Yeah, I see that a lot. My recommendation is is always just to be patient because this takes time. And so when we talk about infidelity, we only see it from how we're told to us through media. So in movies, infidelity happens within a span of like an hour and a half movie. So we think it always happens like suddenly, but it really isn't. It actually took uh, a journey for that married couple to make a whole course of selected decisions and choices that brought them to that place where infidelity became an option. So we're talking years and years and years when you think about this. So when we talk about healing marriage, there needs to be patience. There is no magic pill. I wish that there was, Mm -hmm. but there's not. It needs a lot of patience. It needs a lot of love. It needs a lot of care. And this is really why we we say that marriage does take work. And it is, but it's not gruesome because if you're actually framed in the right way and how you're appreciating your partner, how committed you are to this vision of your marriage, you'll actually see it as a wonderful process. Mm-hmm. It may not always be feeling wonderful, but it really is a joyful process if you're willing to actually move towards a process where you can experience a vision that's coming to pass, but you're also able to express genuine love and trust and kindness to each other. And those were all really expressed through forgiveness. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that um, the infidelity, mm-hmm. whether it be a one night stand or you know several weeks, months, or years, there were years that led up to that. Yeah. And it doesn't necessarily, and correct me if I'm wrong here, doesn't necessarily mean it was the years of the marriage, but they can actually, the causation can be related to long before you ever met Absolutely. your cheating wife or your cheating husband. And Absolutely. so it can be rooted in childhood or, and rooted in their self-esteem. Exactly. And, and that's the complexity of relationships is that we don't realize that we carry in a lot of behavioral patterns already and a lot of strong beliefs about how relationships should be um, operated or executed. We bring that all into our relationship. And the reality is that the bulk of those behaviors are developed out of our relationships with our primary caregiver, which for most of us is our mom and dad. Mm -hmm. And that's where we formulate quite a lot of that.
You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, Tune in Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.